Okay, let me pray and then uh, let's get into the word here. Father, we're opening your word now, so we ask for your help and understanding and grace to um, see the glory of what you've written in this gospel. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, two weeks ago, uh, before Easter, we introduced the gospel of John and I, I took you quickly to the end of the gospel. That's the way to start at the end. And because there John concludes his book by telling us the purpose for writing it. And why write another gospel, right? Why should the reader, um, what should the reader get out of it? After he gets through that story that John tells, what, what should happen to him? What does John want to see happen in the reader as he reads? And that's a question for all of us. So he tells us at the end, John 20, 30, we're going to be in verse 1 of chapter 1, but... John 20, 30, therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So that is his goal in writing, that you believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's gospel is carefully designed to explain why you should believe that and what it means for you. And what he says it means for you is life, if you believe. So, so he's thinking about writing this gospel. He sits down, he's got a parchment in front of him, he's got a pen and how am I gonna start? What's, what, what's the first thing I should say? So I don't know if that's been mulling around in his head for years before that, but uh, Matthew began with a genealogy, which most people go, whoa, that's not very exciting. <laughs> but if you read the genealogy carefully, it's stretching back through King David all the way back to Abraham. And then Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus. Mark begins with a prediction of John the Baptist from Isaiah, the herald of the Messiah. Luke begins with an explanation of how thoroughly he researched the facts that he's presenting in his gospel. That's how he starts, which is a wonderful start. And then tells about the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Christ. So those three gospels, which were all written well before the one we're looking at today, John's gospel, they tell the story of the coming of Jesus into this world, becoming human. But they're also concerned to tie the coming of Jesus to the whole redemptive story of the Bible. So that's what they're working on there. They want, to, they want the promises that God made to be viewed as now fulfilled because that's what happened. The hope of Israel has come. So that's their purpose. John is different. We talked about last week, that uh, two weeks ago, that John is 90% original to him. The other gospels look like each other. And they're sort of similar in some ways, but his is quite different. John is also interested in John the Baptist, but he's not going to start with John the Baptist. He wants to start at the beginning, but not the beginning of Jesus coming to earth. John wants his gospel to go to the beginning, the very beginning, before this world was. So John begins before our universe came into existence. And the fact that he wants to do that means we're going to go deep. <laughs> That's what he's telling us. Remember, we've talked about this many times, but John uses simple words for very complex, exalted ideas. So John decided to start his gospel with a, a prologue. 
because there he can discuss a lot of profound truths before he gets into the coming of Jesus in this in this world. So he wants to tell us who Jesus is before he tells the story of Jesus coming. And who Jesus is reaches back into eternity past. So that's where he's going. The life of Christ did not start in the first century. And that's how John wants to introduce him. Who Jesus is in eternity. So he's a big picture guy and he's going to give us the biggest picture that there is. Truly. So he writes a prologue to, to fill our minds with ideas and concepts. That's what prologues do, by the way. You never have a, a book or even a, a, perhaps a television show or something that has a prologue. Um, it's, that's when the writer wants to tell you some really important information before you get to chapter one. So he thinks there's things you got to know before chapter one. So that's what a prologue does in a book, for example. Prepares you for the story. So it's designed to shape your thinking in some way for what is about to come. So this prologue is where John presents the themes that's going to drive the narrative of his gospel story, okay? Um, one of the, a John scholar named uh, Andreas Kostenberger, he says the themes are the glasses through which John wants his readers to see Jesus. I like that illustration. So the prologue is your prescription. So you can see Jesus more clearly. Oh, that's much better. Yes, that's what he wants to do. Now, since John's purpose is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he decides to tell you these great essential truths about Jesus up front. So other gospels, you're sort of learning who he is as you go. But this, he's, not a, he's not doing it like a mystery story here. There's no slow unveiling going on. He hits you right in the face with it right at the beginning and tells you who Jesus is. And then he's going to tell you why you should put your faith in him. So he makes astounding, breathtaking declarations about the Son of God. And then he's going to tell you the reasons you should believe them. So something most interesting uh, here is the designation that John chooses to first describe Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Kind of like one word. So you think I go too slow sometimes? <laughs> we're really going to be focusing on one word. But actually five words. Sort of partial, partial sentence. Okay. So. Um, he, he wants us to believe Jesus is the son of God. But he doesn't want to start by calling him the son of God. So the prologue is going to fill your mind with ideas and themes. That define what it what it will mean when you get to the part of the gospel later in chapter one where he calls Jesus the son of God. Okay, so he, he doesn't start there though. He, he doesn't want to start with that. He wants to put a lot of ideas in your head before you get to that idea. So now think about this. He's writing to a pagan culture. Son of God could mean pretty much anything in, in a pagan culture, right? Uh, the Greco-Roman world. I mean, Greek mythology and Roman mythology is full of gods having sons and daughters by mortal men and women, right? Achilles was the son of King Peleus and some sea nymph or something. And um, Hercules was the son of Zeus and a mortal woman. The Roman god Bacchus was the son of Jupiter and a mortal woman. So dozens and dozens of Greek and Roman characters were the products of intercourse with the gods. I mean, so sons and daughters of God had a very different meaning to them, obviously. So John will make it very clear by the time he ever uses the phrase son of God that those pagan ideas won't be in your head. He's talking about something very different than that. So he's already preparing the ground for that. That's what he's starting to do. So he doesn't want any confusion. So he holds off 
calling Jesus the Son of God until he establishes who he is using other language. Okay? So, to describe our Savior, John chooses to call him the Word. And the Greek word there is logos, the logos. So first the word, and then in verse 9, he calls him the true light. So those are his first titles that John is going to use. And John won't use the name Jesus even until verse 17. And then he says Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being the anointed one, the Messiah. So Jesus, the Messiah. He's not going to say that till verse 17. And then finally at the very end of his prologue, which ends at verse 18, then he calls him the only begotten God which is really an interesting phrase too, which we'll talk about soon. <laughs> so let's start with John's choice to call Jesus the word. And after the, after the prologue, it's interesting because after verse 18, he never calls him that again. He doesn't use the word as a designation for Jesus, but he does it in the prologue. So let's look closely at verse one here. In the beginning, hold it right there. <laughs> That's a pretty familiar phrase. Is there another book in the Bible that starts that way? Genesis, that's right, I remember. Yes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible starts, right? God created our world and the laws that govern the universe. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, right? So that's God in action. He's doing something. John 1.1, which also starts with in the beginning, has no action. There's no doing the only verb in verse 1, in fact it's used three times, is the most basic verb there is, was, you know, the past tense of I am or he, he was. Third person, right? It's what he was, it's not, he's not doing anything, it's who he is that we're going to be talking about. Such a simple little verb, to, oh it just was, but what a wallop it packs with the information that's being declared through this. That little word was tells us who Jesus is with three declarative statements about him in verse 1. Statement 1 is in the beginning was the logos, the word. Very simple sentence. Again, no action there, just essence. He is the word, the logos. And that's what matters because he's talking about before the creation of the world. In the beginning, this was. And well, next week we'll talk more about how you know that that's the time frame here, but... Um, the question comes, well, why, why pick that word? Why pick logos as a way to introduce him? Um, especially since logos doesn't show up at all in the, in the gospel after verse 18, after the prologue. So why here? Well, there's a lot of scholars that have spent a lot of time on this stuff. I want to share, share a little bit about what they say because it's interesting. And I think they have a lot to offer on this particular question. Why use the logos for Christ as the way to begin? So for one, to introduce Christ first as the Logos would in the first century get people's attention. Now it might not matter to us, but it, it was, it would, the people that were thoughtful or religious in those days, it might grab their minds. It would appeal both to the Greek and to the Jew. It connects with both Greek culture and with Jewish culture. So Greek philosophers used the term Logos, anybody that was reasonably educated or interested in philosophy, which the Greeks were, of course, um, would, have, would have known that word. Uh, it, it's a significant, they would, know, they would link that word with a significant aspect of reality and the way the universe actually is. That's what Greek philosophers would do. 
So, and that all began, you know, it's interesting too, because John wrote um, his gospel, according to the early church fathers, in Ephesus. And that was the part of the world he was shepherding and pastoring over. And he was in 500 years before in Ephesus, um, there was a, a philosopher named Heraclitus. And he wrote about the Lagos 500 years before and introduced it into Greek philosophy. So for Heraclitus, the Lagos brought order. The Lagos, the word brings order to an ever-changing world. He was the one that talked about how the world's constantly changing and, and there's no unity to it, but he, he postulated this, this reason, this force, if you will, that kind of brings the world into some kind of uh, order. So we have an orderly world, but it's always changing all the time too. He's the guy that said, if you go into a, into a river uh, and then come out and go in again, you've, you're in a different world because that water has passed away and new water has come, right? I mean, it's like everything's changed, right? It's a whole different experience. He's, that's the kind of way he, he thought about things. So, um, so for him, the logos brought order to the world. So now let's think about why, why use word? Because logos means word, right? Why use that? Because before we, before we say something, we're thinking something. At least you're supposed to do that. <laughs> the fool doesn't do that, the Bible says, but normal people do. Okay, so... In other words, you have thoughts and then you express them as, as words. So Heraclitus saw the logos as the thoughts behind the universe and the course of the universe as it develops and, and goes forward. And that's why we use the word logic to talk about reasoning, even though it comes from just the word, word, right? But, but it, it developed in Greek philosophy this idea of reason. So logos is more than just a word. It's, it's the reason behind the word, the thinking that goes behind the word. So for him, the logos was not so much a person as it was a principle that ordered the cosmos, if you will. Sort of like the force in Star Wars. It's, it's not a person, but it's directing things toward an end. In Star Wars, he's trying to balance the universe. In Heraclitus' thinking, it's just the flow in, of the universe as it's moving forward and how things come together and events happen and things like that. So it's not a person, though. Um, logos is reason. It's uh, a, a logic, but not a mind in Greek philosophy. So in the first century, which would be John's century, um, the Stoics were quite big, quite popular, and Zeno was their founder. He called the Lagos, he said it was a general law that pervades everything. That's what he called it. He also called this reasoning principle Zeus, which Zeus, of course, is the main god in the Greek and Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon. The Romans called him Jupiter. But, um, so he gave him the name of a god. So even when the Lagos is associated with a god, though, in their philosophy, it's not really a person. Um, it's, it's a power, more like a law of nature, but they call it reason, okay, that kind of idea. So, there was also, at that time, I'm giving you all kinds of information here, you'll forget tomorrow, but, um, so in Alexandria, Egypt, during the time of Christ, there was a, a Jewish philosopher named Philo, and Philo's mission in life was to make the Old Testament sound reasonable to Greeks. So he kind of reinterpreted the whole Old Testament in the, in the light of Greek philosophy. Tried to weld them together. That's very difficult to do and he failed pretty miserably, but he was very famous and um, tried really hard to do that. And he talked about the Lagos as kind of an intermediary between God and this world because the Greeks always thought there's no way God directly interacts with this world. He's too pure for that and this world is too grungy. So it's just like the shocking thing is the idea of the word becoming flesh. That's just 
<gasps> Couldn't happen, right, to a Greek philosopher. But that's where John's taking them. So um, Philo would call the Logos this sort of intermediary being that sort of between God and the world kind of an idea. So Greek philosophy, my whole point is, was very familiar with Logos, that word, as kind of an overarching word for reality and the way things work. It's a familiar word. Now I'm going to switch to the Jewish community and talk about how they used word or logos in their day because they did it too. So Jewish theologians, they, they used the word and if they were Greek speaking they used logos as that word um, and most of them probably were. They would use it as a substitute name for God in Old Testament texts frequently. So Jewish writing about the Bible, they're called targums. And they would take word. I'll give you an example of how that works. Like in, in my Bible, um, there's a couple Bibles that don't do it anymore, but most Bible translations in our Bible, if you're reading the Old Testament and it says the Lord God or the Lord, and it's the, the word Lord is all capital letters, that's God's name, the, the covenant name. Nobody actually really knows totally how to pronounce it, except the Yah part, because that appears in a lot of names. But Yahweh is, is that. Some modern translations want to stick Yahweh in there. I mean, they put it in there because that's just a direct translation of the word. But, but most Bibles use Lord. So because, um, and the New Testament does that as well. The New Testament, no Christian in the Bible calls God Yahweh. I mean, it's not recorded that way. And Jesus doesn't call God Yahweh. It's always Lord, right? So we substitute Lord in the Old Testament and use those all capital L-O-R-D, all capitals, as a substitute for the Yahweh name. But Jews in the first century, it was not uncommon for them not to put Lord there, but to put word there, which is really interesting. Give me a couple, let me get you a couple of examples here. Exodus 33, 11. Thus the Lord, all capital letters, that's Yahweh, right? Thus the Lord, Yahweh, used to speak to Moses face to face. So their Lord is the sacred name, the Y-H-W-H name, the Yahweh name. But Jewish writers quoting that verse sometimes would write, thus the word used to speak to Moses face to face. Because they're not going to say God's name. That's why that whole thing got started. Because they don't want to slip and blaspheme God. So they never said the name. They, they put something else in there. Usually Lord, Adonai. That's what they would often do in the Old Testament. Here's another one. Jacob vows to the Lord in Genesis 28.20, the Bible says. Um, let me read that for you. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then Yahweh, the Lord, will be my God. P pretty, actually there's a lot of tackiness in that. But, um, so Lord is Yahweh, but some theologians, when they're quoting that verse, will say, He'll say, then the word will be my God. The Lagos will be my God. That's how they would do it. So um, it's a very, there's a very tight connection in the Jewish mind between God and the word of God. And it's not just the Yahweh name. Sometimes they just stick it in there for um, pronouns as well. Isaiah 45, 22, the Lord says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Well, a rabbinical theologian might write that and say, turn to the word and be saved all the ends of the earth. Substituting word for me when God is speaking. So that was not uncommon in, those, in that time, in the first century. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And it might explain, it might, because we can't prove it, at least in part, why God chose Lagos 
as the way to introduce Christ at the beginning of his gospel. Remember, John has a gift for using simple language to say really profound things. And these three declarations that begin the gospel show us that right away. Very simple words, but saying truly profound things. That's what John does best. That's his gift. So he's taking that word, um, not saying what the philosophers said about it, and not saying what the Jewish theologians might say about it. He brings something completely new, but the word would draw attention. In the beginning was the Lagos. Oh, that sounds like an interesting book. And then he's going to say amazing, astounding, unbelievable things. And when he gets through saying astounding, amazing, unbelievable things, the astounding truth is going to show up down in verse 14 where he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then everyone freaks out and pulls their hair out. So shocking revelation to the Jew and to the Greek. So while the word logos was out there in the Greek philosophical world and the Jewish religious world, none of them ever said anything like what John is going to say. All right. So the true logos was much more than what they were saying. And he did something that was unthinkable. He became flesh. God made himself known in a person. As a human being. Greek philosophical speculation. Would never come to that conclusion. That God would ever do that. They never would have seen that coming. The logos. Is much more than the rational principle. Of the universe or whatever Zeno. And the other guys had to say about it. And the Jews did not. Though they should have really grasped. That Messiah would be the word become flesh. They really should have come to that. From Old Testament passages. But. That is that God would become a man. They, they, did, they didn't begin to plumb the depths of what God is going to do to bring salvation to us. So that's the blindness of man. It's, it's our sinfulness. For one thing, not seeing our true need and our need for Christ to come and bear our sins. Nor, but, but it's just that we don't understand God uh, without the work of God in us, without the Holy Spirit awakening our minds to it. Human beings need revelation. They need God to speak and man needs to understand when God does speak and, and what God is saying when he speaks. And God spoke much more clearly than they ever could have imagined by showing up in human life, by interacting with us, sharing our life, sharing our very nature, our human nature, our human experience. So the word became fully human and that's what we'll see in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Fantastic truth. And verse 14 then. Will be the last use of the word. Lagos in the gospel of John. In verse 18. Like I mentioned. He gets as direct and clear. As human language will allow. In terms of Jesus being the fullest revelation of God. Verse 18 says. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And then he starts his gospel from there. So I think this need for revelation to have God explained by God as incarnate man might be the main reason that John chose to describe our Savior as the Lagos at the beginning here because it's a revelation. It's a revelation Sure, 
the word logos would grab the attention of the philosophical Greek and maybe the Jew that would use that term as a stand-in word for God. But it's really in the Old Testament that we see why John might do this. Now those might have been reasons, but this might be the, the bigger reason. So listen, human beings, we're amazing. You're amazing. Because you can speak and you can reason. And you do have thoughts that come into words and communicate ideas to other people. That's an amazing gift. Animals don't have it. Yeah, I know they can bark and squeak and stuff, but that's not the same thing. We share thoughts and ideas and language. And that, that is the clearest mark of our being made in the image of God. There's many marks, but that's probably the most obvious. That's the proof, really, of the fact that we're far above the animals. We're made in God's image. God made us to receive communication from him. And even in our sinful fallen state, we can do that. He has communicated to us. And he's done it on occasion by great works of power like the Exodus, all the plagues on Egypt and appearing on Mount Sinai and great fire and thunder and earthquakes and all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's like that, but mainly he did it through prophets. He would communicate truth to prophets and they would speak and be able to foretell the future, which is how we knew they were real prophets. So they spoke or wrote down God's word for us. So Jesus then is a revelation of God. He's the highest revelation of God by far because he's much more than God's word speaking or, or somebody receiving a message and delivering it. He is God in human flesh. So he is the revelation of God. He spoke God's word, sure, but he was God and he lived the word of God. None of the prophets lived the word of God perfectly, but he did that too. Before he came, men had revelation primarily in words. So when he finally comes, he's actually introduced as the word. He's the word. He's the revelation. He's the, he's the, he's God seen. What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the father, right? That's what he said at the last supper. So God personally gave Israel his law, which he expected them not only to embrace as a standard, but to actually live it out. In fact, in the prologue, we see John contrasting the law that was given through Moses with, with Jesus who came into the world. Look at verse 17 again. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And that's when he says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father he has explained him. So the law reveals true things about God. Jesus reveals God in a much more profound way, personally, by being with us. God in person. So we find in the Old Testament scriptures a lot of references to the word of God. And in the Greek translation, which most Jews in the first century used, it's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Bible. It would have been the Logos, right? The word of God. So the Logos isn't just a word from Greek thinkers and Jewish theologians. It's actually deeply rooted in scripture. And I want to show you that a little bit and then we can wrap it up. But, um, well, let me give you a little insight here. This might be a good time to mention that John's gospel has a whole bunch of references or what they call allusions, you know, alluding to something in Isaiah. It's, it's like John read Isaiah 40 times before he sat down and wrote his gospel because it permeates References to Isaiah permeate his gospel in all kinds of ways. But he loves Isaiah, obviously. And he's, it's telling how often God's, in God, God's word is not only talked about here, but in Isaiah. Isaiah 
talks a lot about God's word. Not just giving God's word, like here's a prophet, he's got God's word, but actually describing the word of God. Isaiah does that, he likes to do that. And John, I think it's another reason why he's using Logos for Christ. So let me give you, a, well, the most famous probably verse about the word in Isaiah is Isaiah 40 verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's a really well-known passage there. But what's it saying? The revelation of God cannot fail and it cannot be lost. And its rejection has very dire consequences. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 24. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They despise the Lagos of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 24, 3, the earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken this word. So it's a disaster to reject the word of God. But the one who receives the word of God and gives it the respect it's due and the honors that it's due and obey it like they should, God takes notice of that person. One of my favorite verses in Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verse 2 speaks of God as the creator, just as John 1, 3 speaks of the Logos as the creator. We'll get to that later. But Isaiah says, um, for my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God looks to the humble man who regards God, God's revelation, his word as sacred. That's who God looks to. You want God's attention? You love his word. You honor his word. You give your attention to his word. So John's prologue also calls Jesus the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. John 1, 9. Isaiah describes those whose words are not in accord with God's revelation as being people without light. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word. It is because they have no dawn. No light. Also Isaiah 55. Some scholars see a really strong parallel between God's word. And Isaiah 55 as an active power in the world. And the logos of, of John 1.1. 1, 1. And that's because in Isaiah God speaks of his word as being sent. And accomplishing his purpose. That's also a famous passage. Isaiah 55 verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth. So my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. God says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. And do not return there without watering the earth. And making it bare and sprout. I would insert the word weeds there. <laughs> and furnishing seed to the sower. And bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God's word is sent forth and does exactly what he wants it to do in the world. So too, the Logos, God's son, is sent to accomplish God's purpose. And he certainly did everything that was asked of him in that way. So what do God's word and his son the Lagos have in common. Well, they reveal God. They tell us about God. It's not that the word in Isaiah is the Lagos in John chapter 1, but that the Lagos in John 1 is the ultimate, complete, 
perfect revelation of God because the Logos is God, right? We said earlier, John 1.1 has three declarative statements built around this little verb was, that little verb, and then the pronoun, the Logos. Statement one, in the beginning was the word. Statement two, and the word was with God. Statement three, and the word was God. Logos, Logos, Logos. Logos was, Logos was, Logos was. He was in the beginning. He was with God. And he was God. So John takes a very familiar word, Logos, which has roots in Jewish culture, in Greek philosophy, and in the Bible, and applies that word to Christ. It's a perfect choice for a word to convey this opening message John has about Jesus Christ. And we can see in the declarations that John gives the term logos, he gives it his own definition. And John is giving us God's word about God's son as God's word. Does that make sense? He's giving us God's word about God's son as God's word. He is God's word. He is the logos. So he makes a completely clean break from Greek philosophy. And he goes well beyond Jewish interpretation and even how the scriptures use the term logos. So the three declarations are astounding and John wants it right up front how different the true Logos is from all previous speculations and opinions about the nature of the world. The Logos, according to John, is a person. More than that, this person was with God in eternity. More than that, this person is God. And we shall see in verse 14 then the, the word, the Logos, became flesh. <coughs> One scholar put it this way. He said, Logos connotes the deepest mystery of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself. While the gospel is conveyed in the language of Greek thought of the day, John broke radically with the principal tenet of Greek thought. It was axiomatic to Greek philosophy that any deity was far removed from the physical universe and was relatively uninterested in human affairs, struggles, and joys. How starkly contrasting is the God who reveals himself in the Logos of the Gospel of John. It's so true. So we're dealing with ideas that are wondrously new and unique in that they're not speculations about how the world is, but, but experienced in a person. John knew Jesus. They were best friends. He was close to him. Men like John spent years with Jesus. John knew the man well, but the man was much more than a man much more than a man. He was the beginning. He was in the beginning. He preceded creation. And he was with God. And he was God. Declaration 2 and 3. How can that be? Well, we're out of time. <laughs> so maybe come back next week. You can see what the Bible teaches about the nature of God, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you not only bring us the word of God, you are the very word of God. You are his fullest revelation. You bring truth and light into a lost and dark world, into lost and dark souls. So help us grasp the glory of what it means. We ask in your name. Amen.